It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record, then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. My guest this week is Kim Gattas, whose voice many listeners may recognise, since for many years she's been a reporter for the BBC, from Washington and the Middle East. The modern and conservative classes in this country will have to find a way to bridge their competing visions for Iran's future. Kim Gattas, BBC News, Tehran. Now Kim Gattas has written a new book called Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion and collective memory in the Middle East. As the book's title suggests, it's about much more than politics. For Kim Gattas, the crucial year in the cultural transformation of the region was 1979. So I asked her why that is. I think that there are a lot of turning points in the region that one could look at as being key to understand the history of the Middle East and the Greater Middle East, because I include Pakistan, so I call it the Greater Middle East. But most of the other turning points have had a political impact. I look at 1979 as the turning point for the region that was also cultural and social and affected how people understood their religion, namely Islam. And so 1979 is the key year where three events take place, the Iran Revolution, the siege against the Holy Mosque in Mecca, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Three events that are seemingly unrelated, but that become so completely intertwined that they ripple across the next four decades, which is what I explore in the book. And not only does this year turn Iran and Saudi Arabia from friends and allies, twin pillars in U.S. policy in the region, fighting communism and the Soviets, but it turns them into rivals that also use all tools at their disposal to fight out this rivalry across the region, including cultural, religious, and social. And that has a huge impact, not only on the politics of the region, but on the people, which is what I try to explore in the book. Explain why you see the Iranian-Saudi cleavage as key to so much else in the Middle East, because other people actually often particularly in the region say, oh, well, it's foreign intervention or maybe it's the Arab-Israeli dispute where it all went wrong. Why is Iran-Saudi particularly crucial? The Arab-Israeli conflict is absolutely key to a lot of what has been happening in the region. I don't deny that whatsoever. Foreign intervention is also at the root of a lot of the upheaval in the region. But these are political events that signal the beginning or the end of a political trend, the rise or fall of a political ideology. You know, the defeats of the Arabs against Israel spelled the end of pan-Arab nationalism. 
But they didn't impact people's culture, people's understanding of their religion, how they understand painting or poetry or music. The Saudi-Iran rivalry, because it deployed religion as a tool, they deploy their particular versions of fundamentalist puritanical Islam. And in doing so, they rally people to their side and they impose their understanding of culture and religion on their different camps. And so not only did Iran try to export its Islamic revolution, but Saudi Arabia also started to try to export its puritanical understanding of Islam with ramifications actually all the way to India and Africa. I just focus on the Middle East. Mm. And I mean, it seems almost paradoxical because on the one hand, 79 and the two events you described set these two countries on the course for collision. And yet they're both also come to embrace a very fundamentalist form of Islam. How does that tension play out? So in Saudi Arabia, you had already a very literalist, puritanical understanding of Sunni Islam that is described by many people as Wahhabism after the founder of this thinking, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, who formed an alliance with the founders of the Al Saud dynasty and the clerical establishment and the Al Sauds are still in an alliance although Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is moving away from that. So that puritanical understanding was already there, but it was mostly contained within the borders of Saudi Arabia, and in fact also mostly contained within the borders of the interior desert provinces, because people in the Hejaz province on the Red Sea, home to the two holy sites, Mecca and Medina, have a much more cosmopolitan understanding of their place in the world, and they bristled, actually, at the Al Saud's efforts to impose this darker version of Islam on them. So 1979 turns on the spigot of Saudi funding for this understanding of Islam, and that impacts what you see on television, and it impacts how women dress. And the Iranians from a monarchy turn into an Islamic theocracy under Khomeini, and Khomeini bans alcohol in the country, he forces the mandatory veil on women, music is banned, you know, all this stuff is restricted. And because they're both trying to impose themselves as the leader of the Muslim world, this holier-than-thou competition ripples out into countries like Egypt, where the Saudis export the niqab, the face veil, the black abaya. And that's actually where the book takes its title from. Black wave is the term used by the Egyptian cinema director Yusuf Shaheen in the 90s as he complained about all these actresses who were suddenly removing their nice dresses and covering because, yes, their hair. It, it is very striking, isn't it? I mean, I remember going to Egypt for personal reasons in the mid-80s, and you didn't really see that style of dress. And then when I returned some years later, it was everywhere. It was a wave that really washed over the region slowly. People think that it's temporary, that it'll recede. And then 40 years later, they ask the question that I begin the book with, what happened to us? I don't like to focus just on the appearance of women because women should be allowed to choose whatever they want to wear. But that is the key word. It's about choice. And what Iranian women today are protesting against is the mandatory veil, including women who want to be veiled, but they want other Iranian women to have the choice. And of course, Saudi women are also at the edge of the reformist movement, pushing, say, for example, to drive. And yes, so on. absolutely. But it is about the freedom of choice. It's about the freedom of expression. And it's about diversity and tolerance. And I think that what people forget and what even we in the region have forgotten sometimes is that we have a different past and it's not that long ago. So it's not irrecuperable. We can forge a different future.
Why is it that at the same time they become deeply antagonistic towards each other, they also both seem to feel, this is Iran and Saudi Arabia, the need to not only impose this within their own country, but to try to export the view. Is there something defensive about this effort to export? I think the Iranians are on the offensive and the Saudis are always on the defensive. The new Iranian regime that took shape in 79 and the years after that made clear that they wanted their revolution to be an example for the rest of the Muslim world. And in fact, they were very attractive to a lot of people, including in the Sunni world. I describe how members of the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt and Syria and the Jamaati Islami in Pakistan go to visit Khomeini, all Sunnis. Mm. But they go to visit Khomeini soon after he arrives in Iran triumphantly from Paris because they are still very marginal forces in their own countries. They can't even win much in elections. And they see this man who's brought theocracy to power and they go to visit him to learn from him. And the assassins of Anwar Sadat in Egypt, although they were not assisted in any sort of way by the Iranians, they did look at the example of Iran and think if we assassinate Sadat, we'll also have a Muslim uprising in the country and we'll get theocracy in place. Although, of course, that didn't work out because they had misjudged Egyptian society, which was not interested at all in Islamic Sharia ruling the country. This competition where Iran is trying to pose as the leader of the Muslim world and also very often questions Saudi Arabia's role as custodians of the two holy sites, that custodianship from which Saudi Arabia derives a lot of its legitimacy, Mm -hmm. that questioning feeds insecurity with the Saudis. And so they feel they're constantly on the defensive. And it's this constant outbidding each other that has brought us to the abyss almost. And I just want to say that the characters I profile in the book They're not secular per se. They are very often devout. They pray, they fast, they go to the mosque, but they're progressive in their outlook on life. They believe in the separation of church and state or mosque and state, if you will. And they don't like either the Saudi influence or the Iranian influence. And I really believe that they're not a minority. I think that the people I profile in the book represent a large majority. And it's important to remember that. Yeah. I'd like to come back to that personal element in a bit, but just if you'll indulge me for a while and talk about the political struggle. I was interested that you said that you think that the Saudis feel very much that they're on the defensive. And you do hear that from the Saudis, that Iran is expanding all around the region. And yet from another direction, if you look at it, say, from London, here is Iran, which is the country that's isolated, that's under sanctions, that its economy is really struggling. Saudi has fantastic ties to the United States, is a member of the G20, massively wealthy oil producer. So, you know, who in reality has the upper hand? It's a great question. And I think it requires some analysis of the psyche of both countries and the leadership of both countries. I think the Al Sauds always felt a little bit insecure in their leadership of the kingdom, the way it was established at the turn of the century with the help of the British. Their version of Islam, their understanding of Islam, which is, you know, Hanbali, Salafi, puritanical Islam, was not accepted by a lot of people for a very long time. And when they established themselves as leaders of the kingdom, and they started gaining territory and took over the Hejaz, there was protest at their custodianship of the two holy sites. You know, these two sites are very important. And from there emanates the image of Islam and the message of Islam. And I have one Saudi architect in the book who says, as long as the heart of Islam is wounded, the religion will be wounded and it will ripple across the world. 
just as a side story, because it's important, when they took over Mecca and Medina, some of the zealots with them destroyed some of the heritage sites and the ancient Islamic sites. And that caused an uproar in the Muslim world. And there were calls for a joint international custodianship of those two sites. But the Saudis obviously didn't want that because this is from where they were going to derive not only legitimacy, but also money. And the Iranians often bring up this subject. So it's a sore point. Khomeini often brought it up and Khamenei often brings it up, the supreme leaders of Iran. Every time there's a stampede in Mecca, every time there's an issue in Mecca, the Iranians are at it again. You know, the custodianship of these two sides should be something joint. It is for all the Muslim world. It is not a property of the al-Sauds. And the Saudis are not good at running a network of allies who are loyal no matter what. They cannot snap their fingers and make the Pakistanis show up for the battles in Yemen. They cannot snap their fingers and make the Egyptians show up no matter what for the war in Yemen or in Syria or wherever. In contrast, the Iranians are very good at exporting their thinking, at running a network of militias that is absolutely loyal to them from Hezbollah to Kata'ab Hezbollah in Iraq to the popular mobilization front in Iraq to the Houthis in Yemen. And so the Saudis feel constantly that they're having to fight not only an attack against their legitimacy, but also an attack against territory in one in which they just don't know how to compete. Do you think that they are on the back foot in that sense that they are losing ground within the region? Iran seems to me, again, from the outside, to be in danger of becoming seriously overstretched. They are very overstretched. They are very overstretched because they are, as you said, under sanction. The maximum pressure of the Trump administration is having an impact. And yet somehow, all the predictions about the demise of Iran's regional ambitions or predictions about the fall of the regime have so far come to naught. But I think they're constantly helped by the fact that the Saudis just don't know how to run a regional strategy. Stepping back a bit, the whole Sunni-Shia split is now often talked of as if it's something eternal and that people have been fighting each other along these lines for Mm. centuries. Your book sort of makes one rethink that a bit, that it's not inevitable and it's relatively recent that it's become this bad. Yeah. I go against three key misconceptions about the Middle East with Black Wave. One, as we've just discussed, Iran and Saudi Arabia were not always rivals. And so we can step back from there. Two, the region was not always in the throes of religious and cultural intolerance. So we can step back from there. And it's only been 40 years. That's not actually very long. And finally, Sunnis and Shias, the divide is there. The doctrinaire theological divide is there. It's historic. It's real. But Sunnis and Shias have not killed each other that much over the course of history. In fact, they've probably killed each other less than Catholics and Protestants. It's just that these are the headlines of today, and the violence today is atrocious. And how has the advent of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia changed the story that you're telling? You know, it's very interesting because it's the closing chapter of my book. I make a comparison between him and Qasem Soleimani, who was so good at running these proxy militias, murderous proxy militias, at instilling fear, but at making people respect him or fear him. And I think Mohammed bin Salman wants to be a little bit more like that. He realizes that Saudi Arabia has not gotten much respect and is not feared because it doesn't run its regional strategy the same way as Iran. And so he tried in different ways to be the Sunni leader par excellence. He tried to impose himself, and that's why he started a war in Yemen. He tried to do something in Syria, but couldn't. He's still bogged down in Yemen. Um, He decided to have an embargo against Qatar. This was all sort of, you know, chest-thumping effort by a young crown prince to say, you know, we're not going to take this lying down. We're going to fight back against Iran. You know, a couple of years 
after those efforts, there's not much to show for it. But I think that what it means in terms of the rivalry is that it's going to be difficult to reach a rapprochement, but we could reach detente because neither Iran nor Saudi Arabia want full-on war. And to come back to something we discussed earlier, I mean, the book is very much the story of individuals and how lives were overturned. And you seem to be portraying the death of a whole way of life for a generation of people. It is this nostalgia that people have for a past that looks very different, as though it's a different country, it's a different region. I'm not driven by nostalgia, but I was trying to understand what had happened. And that's the starting question of the book, right? What happened to us? And the final question that is posed in the book by young Iranians and young Saudis is, why did you let this happen? And they pose that question to their parents. Like, did you not see that you were replacing the tyranny of the Shah with the tyranny of theocracy? In Saudi Arabia, they ask their parents, did you not see that the Saudi royals were increasing the power of the clerics and making all our lives miserable and dark? And I wanted to focus on the people whose lives had been appended by the geopolitics because we don't hear enough about them in the headlines today and in the books that are written about the region. I wanted to humanize the region. And I also wanted to tell people, Western readers in Europe, in the US and everywhere else, that when they ask the question, where are the moderate Muslims? Every time there is, for example, an attack in the West, when they ask where are the moderate Muslims standing up against this kind of violence, they should know that they're in these pages, in the pages of Black Wave, and they've been fighting against the rise of fundamentalism and intolerance in their own countries for decades. But they've not been heard outside of their countries because it was often too convenient for the West to back the forces of tyranny and darkness, dictators that served the interests of the West, whether it was Hosni Mubarak in Egypt and peace with Israel, or whether it was Zia al-Haq in Pakistan and the jihad against Afghanistan. Who knows? Even I didn't know how much Pakistani women had tried to fight Zia al-Haq and his Islamization of the country by protesting, by even burning their veils on the street. Those stories were not told, but they're here now. Right. And last question, obviously, temptation, if you're reading it in the West, to say, well, what does this mean for me? And it struck me that the story you tell of the upturning of what had been a comfortable life for a lot of people that kind of thing happened in Europe in the 1930s. But here in the West, until quite recently, we've thought, you know, well, it's all very tragic what's going on in the Middle East. Yeah, but, but it's, it's over not, there. It's over there. Do you think, does it have a wider applicability about the fragility of civilization, if you like? I do, absolutely. I'm not predicting that there's going to be sectarian warfare in Europe or in the US, but absolutely, I do think that there is something of a cautionary tale in these pages because it's about the slow erosion of freedoms it's the slow shift in norms and values where you think, oh, this is temporary or, oh, this is kind of crazy what this person is saying. It's not going to last. You know, these crazy guys with guns, they'll disappear soon. But the slow erosion of freedoms and the shift in norms and values is something that we are seeing in Europe and we are seeing it in the United States. And I don't want to sound flippant about everything else that is happening in the United States, like the detention of young immigrant children at the border. But one thing that really caught my eye was the story about a draft executive order that President Trump has not signed yet, but that he wanted on his desk that called for the neoclassical architectural style to be imposed on all federal buildings in the United States from now on. You're starting to look at culture. You're starting to touch the visuals, what people's surroundings look like. And that is how some of this starts, the slow creep of things changing around you 
and you thinking, well, tomorrow it'll be different, but maybe it won't. And it's important to think very hard about what is happening in our world today and what we're losing in terms of freedoms. Kim Gattas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kim Gattas ending this week's edition. Please join us again next week. And if you don't already subscribe, remember you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachman Review. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.